Good morning, a very good morning to you all. Uh, Today, as we begin in earnest our study of Hebrews, I want to express our indebtedness to Dr. David Moffat for the great introduction he gave us yesterday. What a a blessing. I thoroughly... Sorry? Did I say yesterday? Well, yesterday in my thinking. So one year is is a thousand years to the Lord and so on. Um, (laughs) Yester week. Yester week. Yester Sunday. I thoroughly recommend the podcast to you. I've actually listened to it a couple of times since hearing the talk myself, and I'm getting more out of it every time I do. So much of that talk uh, refers directly into what we've been learning recently, those of us who've been here, in our studies of Exodus, as we try and develop, as a church, an Exodus mindset in our studies in Exodus 1 to 20. But in particular, I think David brought out Uh, the overarching sense of our experience as Christians living in what Hebrews calls these last days being the same kind of thing as the wilderness wanderings of Israel in the Exodus. Like them, we have been set free to worship God and to become his people. And like, like them, we are on our way to a promised land. But like them, we can also expect trials and difficulties along the way. And like them, we require perseverance and faith. So this morning, let's look at uh, chapter 1 of Hebrews, and we're going to read up to chapter 2, verse 4. just before we begin, Hebrews is, is written pretty much as a seamless garment. You know, some, some biblical texts are one point after another with, with recognizable bullet points. Hebrews is not really like that. It just flows from one, uh, from one point to the next. So there are many different ways that we could divide the text, but I think this bite-sized chunk looks like a good introduction to the letter as a whole. And what I'd like us to concentrate on this morning as we read is three different beings that it addresses, and there are three different statuses and roles. And those are the servant, the son, and the saint. And actually comes in the order, the son, the servant, and the saint. Let's read together Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels and his his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression of disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. As David pointed out last week, the principal theme, at least one one of the principal themes of Hebrews, is the superiority of Jesus. And here in chapter 1, Jesus is presented as being better than angels. As the letter progresses, he'll be shown to be better than Moses, better than Joshua, to be the mediator of a better covenant, and indeed to be a better sacrifice and a better high priest as well. The Jewish Christians who are addressed in this letter or sermon should be in no doubt that something better has now been revealed in Christ than was revealed in their entire religious tradition up to that point, their whole faith background. In effect, the writer is making the bold, almost offensive claim that Jesus is better than the Bible. Nevertheless, As we shall see, he's at pains to prove his point from the Bible. And there are just a couple of things to note on that subject before we get stuck into the text. If you were to take your own Bible and look up the passages the writer quotes from, as I'm sure you will, you'll find they look rather different in their Old Testament form from the way they appear when you read them in Hebrews. That is because the author is quoting from the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Old Testament which was widely used, almost universally used, at the time he's writing. So he's not misquoting scripture. He's quoting it accurately as he knew it. It's just that the Bible he used, if we're to believe hundreds of years of scholarship in the intervening period, was itself not as accurate as a good modern translation today. And that presents a problem to any of us who are uh, prone to to following a legalistic word-by-word approach to the interpretation of Scripture. Because according to that approach to Scripture, Hebrews, which is itself part of the Word of God, effectively misquotes the Word of God. Difficult. So even as we study and strive to understand the Bible and to live it out as we are called to do, we have to remember that even the translations we have today, excellent as they are, are not 
the original text. Above all, as verse 3 says, they are not Jesus himself. He alone, not the Bible, as we see it today, is the exact imprint of the Father. And the second thing, interpretatively speaking, if that's a word, it is now, the second thing, the writer seems to assume that the whole of the Old Testament points to the Christ. Apparently he feels no compunction at all in applying scriptures to Jesus, even though in context they refer specifically to somebody else. For example, in verse 5 of today's passage, he quotes 2 Samuel 7.14. Most readers, and probably King David himself, to whom the words were actually spoken, would have assumed this prophecy was about David's son Solomon. But biblical prophecy has an uncomfortable tendency to find more than one fulfillment in human terms, in human experience. Probably one that's immediate and local, and another that is future and perhaps global. And the third thing, interpretatively speaking, is this. And again, this is rather different from our own practice in applying scripture. You'll notice he never bothers to say where he's quoting from. Now, if all of this seems a bit free and easy to you, then perhaps it's that way for a purpose. We can tell from the massive frequency with which this writer quotes the Bible that he takes it extremely seriously, at least as seriously as we do. Indeed, it is he and no other who gives us that famous line about the word of God being living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, etc., etc. He knows his Bible well, and he expects his right, uh, readers to be the same. He quotes it as authoritative, and he expects his listeners to regard it as such. But he simply does not use it in quite the same way that we do. And he's not using the same version either. So perhaps we Bible scholars, we Bible lovers, we, even we Bible pedants, we know who we are, can justifiably relax a little bit about aspiring to complete textual accuracy while still taking the Bible seriously as the word of God, as this writer does. So, finally, to the text. The first character we meet is the son. The first three verses tell us something about the shared heritage of the writer and his audience as Jewish Christians. And also about the form of argument that the letter is going to follow. But most of all, they tell us about its principal theme, which is, of course, Jesus. The reference in verse 1 to our fathers indicates that both the writer and his audience were Jewish Christians. And by the way, I say he, but there's no real reason for supposing it's not a woman. It might well be a woman. We don't know who it was. could easily be someone like Priscilla or Junior. So let's please uh, forgive me if I just use he as a generic term, but uh, I include or she with throughout. The argument that follows is going to compare the many and various ways in which the unchanging God spoke in the Old Testament with the way that he has now spoken through his son. We may infer that since God is unchanging, his overall message to his people is still the same. It's still a message of his love, of our need to be put right with him, and of the means that he has provided so that can happen, so that we can be restored to full fellowship with him as in the Garden of Eden. 
There's an obvious comparison between the diverse and diffused prophetic voices of past centuries and the single, clear, and concentrated voice of God so recently heard in Jesus in these last days. If you remember from last week, the last days described as a specific period of history which was long expected among certain groups of Jews where the prophecy of Joel 2 would, uh, would come to fulfillment. Peter famously quoted that Joel passage in Acts chapter 2, explaining that what the people were seeing was Joel's outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh in the last days. And of course he finished with a declaration that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if we were to judge, if you remember the story, from the reaction of the crowd, Acts 2.41, where 3,000 people came to Christ and made commitments to Jesus on the spot, that understanding and expectation of what the last days is all about must have been widespread. When the last days came around, you didn't want to be sitting around twiddling your thumbs. You wanted to be calling on the name of the Lord. The last days immediately precede the day of the Lord, which is the day of judgment. So this recurring theme of today in this letter or sermon, whichever it is, always understands that we are living in make or break times. Today is not like any other period of history. It is the turning point between the days of the old covenant and the days of God's coming kingdom. It is characterized by God's spirit being poured out on male and female, rich and poor, uh, slave and free alike. It's a time of signs and wonders, of prophecy and visions, when God is present among mankind as never before. And it's going to culminate in the great and awesome day of the Lord. We'll find an explicit reference to that finally in chapter 10. But that's running ahead. It is assumed throughout Hebrews that that's the case. The writer connects all of this, of course, with Jesus. <clears throat> the prophets were quite rightly revered, but they're nothing to the Son. As verses 2 and 3 go on to elaborate. Like the prophets of old, Jesus bears God's word to mankind. But as John 1 puts it, he does more than simply carry the word. He is the word. That's why Jesus is able to say, I and the Father are one. Or, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Verses 1 to 2a are strongly, strongly reminiscent of Jesus' parable of the wicked tenants, if you remember, in Luke 20. Indeed, I think this might be a, a, a deliberate reference. Do you remember the story? The owner of a vineyard lets it out to tenants, and then he goes abroad. Eventually, after sending one servant after another to collect the rent, only to see them return uh, battered, beaten, and uh, empty-handed, eventually he sends his son but the tenants think, aha, if we kill him, we can keep the vineyard forever. So they kill him. But of course it doesn't work out that way for them. The owner comes back and destroys them and lets the vineyard out to other new tenants. And the context of that parable is a question from the religious authorities. By what authority are you doing these things? So the meaning is clear. The religious leaders of Israel, who have a long and very patchy history, in relation to listening to God's messengers, the prophets, are now confronted with his son, whom they will also reject 
and kill. And so call down on their heads the inevitable judgment of God. In Hebrews, the writer will call us to respond appropriately to the Son, as we might not have done to the prophets. And in verses 2b to 3, that was the second half of 2 to 3, he outlines some of the essential attributes of Jesus, whom he finally will identify by name, Jesus, like the man Jesus, the guy we've all heard of, those of us who haven't even met him. In chapter 2, verse 9, that too is running ahead. Jesus is the heir of all things, meaning he has a legal right to everything, including us and all we have. He's also seen here as the agent of all creation. And again, this is reminiscent of John chapter 1, which identifies Jesus as the creative word of God, without whom nothing was made that is made. But more than that, verse 3, his appearance on earth shows that he is the radiance and exact imprint of God. In other words, we know exactly what God is like by looking at Jesus. Any separation we might have in our minds between a a soft and cuddly son and a terrifying, angry father is completely false. So let's take it out the back and shoot it in the head right now. It ain't so. That is a lie. I think there's a lovely symmetry between Jesus presented here as God's creative word in verse 2 and the sustainer and saviour of the world in verse 3. He created it and found it good in Genesis 1. So, of course, he not only keeps it going by the word of his power, but has also cleansed it of the sin that threatened to damage and destroy it. And once that was done, he sat down in the place of highest honor, next to God, resting from his work, which is also an idea we'll come to later on in the letter, in a fortnight's time. So in these opening three verses, we have a very concise but fairly comprehensive outline of the character and work of Jesus. This is our Lord, our creator, our sustainer, our savior, and he now holds the place of highest influence in heaven and on earth. Well might we join with the words of Peter in John 6, 68. Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. In verses 4 to 14, we find a lengthy discourse on angels, presented as servants of God, not sons. Compared with the son himself, great as they are, this is part two, the servant, their name, which means in biblical terms, their, their nature, their the whole description of them, is hugely inferior, verses 4 and 5. Indeed, verse 6, the angels are to worship the Son. Verse 7, which quotes Psalm 104, calls them servants, whereas verse 8, quoting Psalm 45, displays the Son as God enthroned forever. And in verses 10 to 12, quoting Psalm 102, they draw attention once more to the Son as the creator of heaven and earth. Unlike the creation an eternal being. And finally, verse 13 cites Psalm 110, which actually depicts God in a way as serving the Son. You, you, have a, you sit down. You sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to put under your feet. An extraordinary image. 
Now, those of you who were here for our studies in Colossians last year will find a couple of strong echoes in this passage, in the opening of Hebrews, but I gather from Dr. Moffat and other sources they might be misleading ones. So, um, so let's not necessarily go there. just want to lay them to rest for those of you who have studied Colossians. The Colossian church was struggling in a morass of confused pagan and Jewish ideas, two of which emerged clearly. A return to the Jewish form of worship of God, and the worship of angels. Around the time both these letters were written, there were strong voices calling Christians to become more Jewish, effectively reducing Christianity to a minor offshoot, a subset of Judaism, the great Jewish tradition. And Paul hastened to oppose those voices. According to my commentaries, there was also a great deal of speculation around at the time uh, about the nature and role of angels. In fact, as Colossians 2.18 shows, there was even a cult of angel worship going on. And of course, uh, of course, Paul shoots that idea down in flames as well. It's possible then that the readers of this letter, Hebrews, or the listeners to this sermon, were at least aware of those influences. But this letter does not read like a correction of those errors. Overall, it is simply an exhortation to stick faithfully to the confession of our faith. That being so, it seems the main reason why it speaks at some length about the angels is not to say, uh, stop worshipping angels, you silly Hebrews. It is to draw attention to the contrast between the messenger, which is what the word angel means, and Jesus, between the servant and the son. Angels, as we see in chapter 2-2, were regarded as having revealed Mosaic law. If you want a cross-reference for that, try Acts 7-53 or Galatians 3-19. And it seems to me also that scriptures like the book of Daniel and the various appearances of angels around the time of uh, Jesus' birth strongly suggest that prophecy is also delivered to mankind by angels. And the point surely is this, that angels awesome as they are, are only messengers. They're mere servants. The Son is greater by far. Now, it's impossible to tell from the text exactly what experience the Hebrews might have had of angels or what they thought about them. Possibly what we're witnessing is sort of hammer-blow logic in verses 4 to 14, to goad them into a change of attitude by repeatedly telling them something they already know that angels, mere messengers, are not to be compared with the Messiah. If, under persecution, they're tempted to try soft-peddling the lordship of Christ and the offense of the cross, if they retreat back into mainstream mainstream Judaism, then they are treating Jesus as if he were just another angel or just another prophet just another bringer of God's word. But he's more than that, he is God's word. Many people today believe that Jesus was just a prophet or just a great moral teacher, though I notice not many of them actually obey his teachings. If so, they're confusing the son with the servant. That, I think, in brief, is the point the author wants to stress. As the conclusion of the argument in verse 14 indicates, angels are just servants, Of God, note, not of man, they serve for our sake, but they serve God. 
It would be completely illogical, the writer says, to pay attention to, these, to what these servants say while ignoring the one whom they serve. Particularly when, in every word of scripture, from his point of view, the servants point to the son. A common sight on the street corners of London in days gone by, though I'm not quite old enough to have seen one, was the barrel organ, cranked by the picturesquely dressed organ grinder, with a little monkey dancing on top of it to the music. And to this day in the Metropolitan Police, it's commonly said, I don't know why you're asking me, mate. I'm the monkey, not the organ grinder. I think had the barrel organ been invented at the time the writer is writing to the Hebrews, we might find that phrase in Hebrews 1. Don't talk to the monkey, talk to the organ grinder. Why talk to the servant when you can talk to the son? Certainly there's many a Christian who does not love and respect the Bible enough. But there's also a kind of Christian who loves the Bible more than he loves Jesus. They're confusing the servant with the son. Let's never make that mistake. And finally, the saint. Up to this point, the author has resolutely kept us, the saints, out of the picture. That is, apart from one exception back in verse 2, where he said that God had in these last days spoken to us in his son. Hebrews 1 has been a picture almost entirely confined to heaven rather than earth. But at last in verse 14, humanity once more gets a look in with a reference to the angel serving for our sake. You can almost imagine the gathered Hebrews, whoever they were, getting restless as they listened to chapter 1. Yeah, 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 we know all that. What's your point? But at last, chapter 2 starts with a glorious, long-awaited therefore. This, finally, is the point of all that. Because the Son is greater by far than the angels who gave us the Old Testament, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. This, what we have heard, can surely only be a direct reference back to chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. Therefore, we have to pay far closer attention to what we have heard. We have a privilege unheard of in previous generations. They had to make do with the monkey. We get the organ grinder. They had to make do with the messenger. We get the message himself. We then have to pay much closer attention. But tantalizing, he doesn't say closer than what? Closer than we have been doing? Or closer attention to this new revelation of the sun than we did to that brought by angels? Probably both, it seems to me to judge from verses 2 and 3. If the message that came through the servant was reliable and disobedience was justly punished, what can we expect if we neglect the great salvation that is now revealed in the Son? Nothing good, I venture to suggest. But just notice, if you will, the verbs in verse, verses 3, and particular, particularly verse 1. Neglect and drift away. As David Moffat pointed out last week, sin in Hebrews is predominantly presented as faithlessness in the sense of not sticking to and declaring the truth we know. 
I don't suggest you do this exercise while you're feeling depressed. But if you do have an idle moment and want to get real, look up sometime the statistics on how many former Christian Union members are still going on with God just five years after they leave university. It makes for depressing reading. But the first problem is not that they all go out and commit some terrible sin, though many of them will probably go on to do that. The first problem is simply that they drift away through neglect. Particularly, I would suggest, through a failure in one of our key watchwords in the church, healthy membership of a healthy church. In verse 3, what concerns the writer of Hebrews is not that his hearers, fa- his hearers fail to lay hold on Christ, repenting, declaring him as Lord, accepting the free gift of his salvation. They've done all that. If they're now in danger, it is through simple neglect after the salvation event. And once you start to notice this, you can't read anywhere far in the New Testament without seeing strong injunctions to stand firm to the end. Faithlessness in biblical terms tends to mean trustworthiness. At least as much as it means having faith, probably more. Why don't you try a contextual word study of faith and faithlessness sometimes and see if I'm not right. The danger in Hebrews is not some massive fall for grace into obvious sin and debauchery. It is simply drifting away through neglect. The word for drift is one that you'd use of a a boat being rowed against the current. If we stop rowing, we'll end up somewhere we don't want to go. Once again, this is reminiscent of the wilderness experiences of Israel. There will be trials and difficulties to overcome along the way. We're out of slavery, thanks to the great and free salvation God has provided, but we're not in the promised land yet. Here in the desert, in these last days, God requires faithfulness. And in closing, let's just notice in the second half of three into four, the indicators of God's kingdom coming and of the great salvation we have received but which we're still in the process of realizing in our wilderness wanderings. Verse 3, there was a declaration of the good news by the Lord himself in the life he lived, in the words and actions through which he taught us, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. Next came the faithful testimony of human witnesses. And lastly, verse 4, there was the witness of God himself in signs and wonders and evident gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because it's no witness if it's not evident. Here, I think, are some hints as to how we should pay closer attention to what we've heard. We should look for these three elements in our own daily lives, in our work and leisure, in our dealings with family and friends. We should look to experience and bring about the evident, conscious presence of Jesus himself. Not only in our daily devotions, which should start every day, but also throughout the day. We should look to experience and to bring faithful representation of the good news of Jesus in our own Bible study, but also in art and literature, the media, in our conversation with friends. We should look to experience and bring signs and wonders and obvious gifts of the Spirit, not just in church, but also in the big wide world in which we spend most of our lives. 
And I suggest we should also seek these three vital elements in any community of believers to which we belong. The manifest presence and influence of the risen Lord. The faithful representation of the good news by people who've obviously experienced it. And the power of God seen in signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Which thought segues nicely into our ministry time. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Lord Jesus, Son of God, creator, sustainer, and saviour of the universe, who's now seated at the right hand of the Father. We declare to you our love and worship. And we also declare our allegiance. We don't want to be those who shrink back to perdition, but those who press on, those who stand fast in our most holy faith. So Lord, send your Holy Spirit upon us now. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Change our hearts and minds. Increase in us our, our faithfulness to you. We just invite you to grow in our hearts right now. We open our lives to you.